Boston Confidential, Bean Tom's True Crime Podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail in Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name is Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator, and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to give me a call or an email at Impact, and if I can't help you personally, I'll direct you to the right agency or individual. Okay, we've got some tough sledding on a case today. It's an old one. The case is Holly Peranian out of Sturbridge, Massachusetts from 1993, believe it or not. I remember this case vividly when it happened, and it's a heartbreaker, and it is pretty explicit. So if that's not the type of episode you're looking for, you may want to skip this one. But I think it is a good episode to listen to because it may be connected to the Molly Bish case. It's never been established, but there's always been quite a bit of speculation on it. If you remember from our last episode, Molly Bish disappeared nearby in Warren, Massachusetts, and this occurred in Sturbridge. And it's relatively the same area, very close, very rural, very wooded. And both of these murders, Molly was 16 and Holly Peranian was 10. But the circumstances were somewhat similar. They were in an isolated area, young females taken from the scene, case goes cold, and I'm afraid we know the outcome. So let me take you through the facts of the case first. Okay, so it's August 1993, and the Peranian family has access to the grandparents' cottage on a pond in Sturbridge. South Pond. It's a small pond. It's a beautiful area. People fish, hike in the area. And looking at it through the photographs, it's a child's paradise. And Holly was 10 years old and her dad was ready to give her a little bit more independence. So they had spent some time there and a neighbor down the road, their dog just had puppies. So Naturally, Holly's 10 years old, hears about this. I don't know if she had seen the puppies before, but she wanted to see them on this day, August 5th, 1993. So Holly and her brother, who was age five at the time, were going to walk down the dirt road to the neighbor's house and visit with the puppies for a little bit. But as five-year-olds sometimes do, he seems to have made it about halfway there and decided he wanted to return home, and he did by himself. It was thought that Holly had continued on, but how far she continued, nobody really knows. So when Holly didn't return after a suitable amount of time, he sends another sibling down to look for Holly. And this is Sturbridge, Massachusetts, where nothing ever happens, probably still to this day. Everybody seems to know everybody there, so nobody was super worried off the bat. But Holly's dad 
Rick Peranian, sent his oldest son to take the same route and go retrieve Holly from the neighbor's house. That's where she was thought to be. And when the older son returned without Holly, Rick Peranian became frantic. He decided to search. He went down to the house. He looked around the area. And ultimately what was found in the road was one of Holly's shoes. At this point, Rick immediately calls the police and a search didn't really begin that day. They did a canvas of the area, but in terms of a massive search, that didn't occur till the next day. One thing that's kind of curious to me is I've recently read a book on the Molly Bish case. It's called Who Took Molly? And it's by Dr. Sarah Stein, PhD. And in that book, Dr. Stein has some information that Holly at a previous camp, sleepaway camp, had basically said to a counselor, if she was ever to be abducted, she'd leave one shoe on the ground so some searchers would know that she was in fact abducted. It's haunting. I don't know if Dr. Stein substantiated that or if she was even able to, but if that's true, that's just a haunting statement. So Holly's shoe was found in the road in the area of the home with the puppies, but the area is extremely rural. Holly's dad, Rick, was beside himself, and they were staying with the grandmother, Maureen, at the cottage in Sturbridge. And there's not a lot of mention of Holly's mother, Tina Harrington. It seems as though, and I I don't want to make any assumptions, but it seems as though they were either divorced or never married. But the mother, Tina Harrington, doesn't appear to have played a large part in this episode. So I can't comment on the status of the marriage. I really don't know. The next morning, a massive search, as you'd expect, was conducted. The Sturbridge police called in the Massachusetts State Police, who called in their air wing and volunteers as well. And they did a pretty, pretty good search with a wide search pattern. Holly was not to be found. So they continued searching in the police. The Mass State Police comes in to help these smaller jurisdictions and they lead the case, but they do have manpower help from the Sturbridge Police. They kind of work hand in hand. I believe the unit that does that at the time was called CPAC, C-P-A-C. Don't know what the acronym stands for, but they usually come in and assist and direct the investigation. Now, I'm old enough to remember this case, and there was widespread panic. Anytime this happens in any part of the state, the media loses their mind, and rightfully so. It just tugs at everybody's heart where a child can just go missing like this, and it cuts across all swaths of society, black, white, Asian, Hispanic. Everybody's heart goes out, and that's exactly what happened in Massachusetts during this case. So the state police and the Sturbridge police begin their investigation and they start with the family and work outward. But everybody seemed to have been accounted for as the rest of the family was at the cottage while Holly and her brother walked down to see the puppies. But I'm sure the state police did background investigations on Rick Peranian and everybody involved. It's just standard operating procedure. 
So that came to an end pretty quickly. These people are just hardworking Americans and victims. They're simply victims in this case. It's so sad, but this case went cold quickly. It doesn't seem it was ever, ever hot, right? So it went cold very quickly and the state police continued to work it and they worked it very hard. When Holly couldn't be found, the police started investigating local sex offenders, people known to them, people with an inappropriate interest in children, criminal records, drug abusers, the whole nine yards, but they just don't get anywhere. There's no tie to that road. There's no tie to Holly. And it's a textbook, The Stranger Abduction. The kid is there one second and gone the next. And it's very difficult to investigate because typically a stranger abduction is just that. The person has no connection to the child or person that's been abducted. Unless there's physical evidence, it becomes a mystery pretty quickly. So after several days, maybe a week, the search is called off, but local residents continued on their own, looking in the woods around the pond and a few other places. But tragically, on October 23rd, about two months after the initial disappearance, Holly Peranian's body was found. And it was found in the area of Five Bridge Road in Brimfield, which is relatively close by. But it's an extremely rural section of Brimfield. All of Brimfield, all of Sturbridge is, is rural. I keep saying that. So the entire area is rural. The state police recover the body. They're very tight-lipped on any evidence that is found. And that's completely acceptable. Standard operating procedure. They don't release much. Now, keep in mind, this is 1993. This is mostly before the advent of DNA. So Holly's body was recovered, and there was some evidence. Reporters would see them take certain things out of the woods and, you know, paper bags and all that. So local reporters stated there was some evidence, but the Mass State Police wouldn't comment on it naturally. So there was really no DNA. I, I think the first usage, widespread usage, would have been around the time of the O.J. Simpson case, which was still in the future. So we're kind of in a backwards type situation here where DNA, as we know it today, just simply hadn't been developed. The body was discovered in a strange place, Five Bridge Road. It's an area known to locals, and the body was discovered by hunters in the area. And everybody that had been interviewed that I had read during my research said, you'd really have to know the area to come down this road. There's a split in the area that you probably wouldn't even see. There's some pictures of it online if you want to Google it, but the police seemed to think that this was a local person who committed this homicide due to the nature of the geography. You'd have to know where you were going in order to dump a body or dump anything in that area. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break here. And after the break, I'll take you through the rest of the case. All right, stand by. Are you a local or international law firm that needs accurate, comprehensive, and timely background investigations and litigation support? Let Impact Due Diligence Investigations do the legwork. If there's information you need for a case, we'll find it. When you need to know, call Impact. Visit us at impactduediligence.com. 
All right, guys. So the bodies found. State police start their investigation, and nothing much comes of it. Again, they find the body. It was cold before the body was found, and the case was cold mostly afterwards. I say the case is cold. The police may say something different because they know more and they can't release any of the information. They can't compromise the integrity of the investigation. So again, it's just mostly silence. The media did a good job keeping it in the forefront of the public's mind, but there just didn't seem to be a hell of a lot going on with it. And today there'd be more, I think, more of a professional relationship between the media and the police in this. But in 1993, there was nothing. And pretty soon this case faded from people's memory. Now, unlike the Molly Bish abduction, in Molly's case, I heard at least three or four top-notch private investigators had donated their time to the family. In this case, I didn't hear anything like that. In my research, I still didn't come across anything like that. Private investigators are a good group. They will volunteer their time. They'll do it for free, and they just want to help the family. But sometimes the police discourage that, and the victims of violence sometimes are blinded by what the police say. They're basically God in this investigation, right? They don't want to upset the investigators. They don't want to complain to them because they're the only ones looking for their loved one. And when the body's found, they're the only one looking for the murderer. So in a lot of cases, victims' families simply just don't want to rock the boat. So as far as the public knows, the case goes completely cold after the body's found. And the only media coverage that comes in these years is on the anniversary of the homicide. And, you know, they do one year, two years, five years, 10 years. There had been, I suppose, some suspects over the years, but nothing ever really panned out. And I don't remember, even in my research, I couldn't find a suspect's name or really anything from the state police on this case. It's kind of confusing to me. I think in more recent years, the 2000s and beyond to present day, there's more of a strategy that involves the media, that involves forensics, that involves the FBI. The FBI can do a profile of somebody who could do that, and you can narrow your search field. But I don't know if this was done in this case. Sometimes I get angry around the secrecy of this case. And I think I said the same thing during the Katrina Homa murder. What good does it do? to hold everything back. I know some things have to be held back from the public to prevent false confessions, to maintain the integrity of the investigations. But there's usually something you can release at certain times, right? In this case, it's been over 20 years. What good does it do to hold on to some of this stuff? If the perpetrator was an adult male, he may likely be dead or coming to an age where he's approaching death. So at a certain point, I feel like the police need to throw some things against the wall, shake it up and see what falls from the tree. That didn't really happen in this case. And it went dead cold and it broke everybody's heart. Whenever the anniversary would come around, you'd see it on shows like Chronicle 
and the angle of Holly going to see these puppies, and you see this toe-headed, beautiful young girl who just wanted to go see some puppies abducted and killed. It really tugged at the heartstrings here in New England. The case remained cold until 2012, when the state police had, uh, sometime prior in 2012, had sent some evidence down, they won't say what the evidence is, to the FBI, who had a new testing method. And this time, some DNA came back. And everybody thought an arrest would be imminent until they heard the press conference. The press conference revealed the person's name. The DNA came back to a man named David Poulot. And it's French. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. P-O-U-L-I-O-T. Poulot. Unfortunately, David Poulot died of congestive heart failure. Heart failure, basically. And also a contributing cause in the autopsy was cocaine abuse. There's not a hell of a lot known about this guy, David Poulot. And he was a outdoorsman, fisherman, as many people are in that area. At one time, he had worked for the Parks Department of Springfield. He was a resident of Springfield, Massachusetts, which is relatively close by as well. It's probably the closest major city. You know, it's Brimfield is somewhere between Worcester and Springfield, but probably closer to Springfield, Massachusetts. So he worked for the Parks Department. At another portion of his life, he was some type of union employee, construction union. I don't remember which one it was. But he did have some criminal record, but that had more to do with drugs than violence. He hadn't been arrested for rape or anything like that. He had never served time. And pretty soon, the Massachusetts State Police were asking for the public's help on information on this guy. He kind of seemed to be, I don't want to call him a loner, but just people didn't know much about this guy. And although this guy, David Poulot's DNA came back, the Massachusetts State Police were reluctant to call him a suspect. They called him a person of interest. So we don't know what type of DNA this was, skin cells, something more, something sperm or other bodily fluids. They won't release what that is. They won't release the information as to where this DNA was found. Was it found on the body, clothing? It would seem to be found on the clothing that was found with the body, but not entirely sure because they just won't release that information. And it's been 27 years now. What goddamn difference does it make? You haven't solved the case yet. Give the public some more. Maybe somebody will say, yeah, I know this guy. He did A, B, and C. It's 27 years, guys. Give it up. So the state police won't say how they got Pulat's DNA because he had never been arrested for a felony in Massachusetts. And even if he had in 1993, they weren't suspects or people convicted of felonies weren't required to give a DNA sample because there was no DNA to analyze, really. You can watch the press conference on TV. And I try to decipher a little bit. They 
they seem to allude to the fact that there may be more than one person involved. Didn't come right out and say it, but they kind of alluded to it in that it's just strange. It was a strange press conference and the Peranians were there and they were just devastated. I think they were hoping for something more, but I think the state police may have told them a little more than they've told the public. So is that the guy? I'm assuming it is. Why would they name him if they couldn't prove that this was in fact a suspect or had something to do with this case? So the natural question is, was this tied to the disappearance and murder of Molly Bish in nearby Warren, Massachusetts? And in a strange twist, if you look at pictures of David Poulat at the time, 1993 and after, which is at this press conference, you can see some photographs of him. He kind of fits the, the description or the sketch comprised in the Bish case. If you remember in that case, I told you that this composite sketch appears to resemble one of the suspects in Molly Bish's case, Rodney Stranger. And when I say it looks like him, it looks like he sat for a portrait. But if you look at this guy, Poulette, it's similar as well. And I'm just confounded on it. I've looked into it and my head spins on this case. Is it related to the Molly Bish case? I simply don't know. There's not enough evidence. None of the evidence, you know, I'm privy to. It's nothing in the public domain. But I think the police have more information. And in Holly Peranian's case, it's been 27 years. There's little to lose now. You know, blow some life into this case. Throw some evidence against the wall. Accuse somebody. Do something. I simply think the police owe it to the public in Massachusetts. There could very likely be a serial killer in Western Massachusetts who kidnapped and killed Holly Peranian, age 10, and Molly Bish, age 16. Nobody's ever been arrested. Honestly, guys, on this case, I feel like I'm not giving you much, but there's not much in the public domain. There's not much on the case. There's not much on the suspect. And they don't even call him a suspect, this Poulet guy. But they say he's a person of interest. He's dead, you know. And somehow his DNA got on something of Holly Peranians. Why not say what it was? Why not say the names of the people he hung around with? Where he hung around? Was he a member of a club? Something. Breathe some life into this goddamn case. Get off your asses. All right, guys, I think I'm going to wrap it up here. I'm sorry, I don't have much on this case. I'm extremely interested in the case file, but it's very thin in the public domain anyway. But some housekeeping things, guys. We're happy to announce that we recently went over 3,500 downloads, and that's a pretty high benchmark for, you know, 11 episodes. It's pretty big in the podcasting world. So I wanted to thank all my listeners for helping me with that. We're actually at about 3,600 now. Hoping to go over about 4,000 with this coming episode. I'll keep you posted as we go. I'm open to doing some live things, some Facebook streaming, stuff like that. 
I know nothing about it, but just like with this podcast, I'll fake it until I make it. But I did want to say thank you to everybody for listening. And if you want to get a hold of me for any reason, story suggestions or anything else, feel free to email me anytime at barry at bostonconfidential.net. Feel free to check out our website at bostonconfidential.net. And I look forward to doing more of these for you. We're going to have a second episode on the Molly Bish case. And I think you're really going to like it. It's not going to be for quite a while because I have a special guest in mind. And it's going to blow your mind. And it's going to make you more angry than you already were for that case. So, again, I just wanted to say thank you to all my listeners. Things are going well with the podcast. Going to try to do some more multimedia stuff. I think some video of these cases would help. It's just time-consuming, and the research on these cases is pretty extensive, as you can tell. But again, thanks very much. We'll get back to you next week. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.